Amen. Hey, this morning we are continuing our study in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, don't own one, you should find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you, for you to take home, uh, for you to use, read, study, and come to know more about who God is as revealed through his scriptures. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of that. And that's going to let you know where the books are located. And then the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Again, this morning we're in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. When I was in college, I had a, a friend of mine who, I was trying to think what a really delicate way to put this is. He was unlucky in love, right? Great guy. Amazing guy. Good friend to me, uh, a good friend to many, and I think that was kind of his downfall. And in the pattern that, that would kind of find him is that he would set his affections on a, a, a woman. They'd hang out a lot. They'd go do fun stuff and go out to eat a couple times or whatever, uh, run, play sports, all this kind of stuff. And then at some point, he would sit down and he would have this, this DTR, right, define the relationship. And so, and, and it went something like this. Hey, she'd awkwardly say hey back to him because they're in a conversation, right? And so I'm, you, y'all are going to be the woman in this and I'm going to be the man, okay? So, hey, I really like you. You feel awkward right now, right? <laughs> That's right. He never saw that coming. But he said, listen, I really... I really like you. I really enjoyed spending time with you. And I, I'd like to take this, our relationship, to the next level. And there would be this long pause. And she would say something like this Oh, I feel so terrible. You're such a nice guy and such a good friend. I just don't like you like that. And then just to rub salt in it, she would say, you know, as if somehow now he could somehow avoid that, right? Clearly, if he had known, he would not have had the awkward conversation of, I like you, I enjoy spending time with you, I'd like to take it to the next level. Asking you know or saying that implies that he should have clearly read all of the signals, which he was pathologically incapable of doing. And I know this because as my friend, he would come to me and say, remember I've been hanging out with, with Beth or with Sue or with Jill or with Jillian or whatever her name happened to be this month? I'd say, yeah, 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 I know her. Things are going so well. We just have so much fun together. We have so many things in common. And I had this conversation with her, and I wanted to just check out and lobotomize myself in that moment. Because I knew what was going to happen. He's going to say, I told her I liked her. I told her I enjoyed spending time with her, and I asked her if she wanted to take it to the next level. And I should have said, let me bet you one million dollars that her words were, oh, I didn't know. You're such a nice guy. I really like being your, the death knell friend. This defining the relationship 
uh, for him was always the death now. It shouldn't really, can I be determining the relationship, but just destroying his inner life in his inner world. He was so uh, unsure of the relationship and all of these conversations led, him, led away with this understanding of there is no future for me for any of these, uh, in, in any of these relationships with any of these women. I think there are times when our relationship with the Lord feels like we come to him and say, I really like you. I'm not sure how you feel about me. But I, I, I feel like maybe you're disappointed in me. And I, I feel like maybe uh, I, I, I've let you down. Or I, I feel like, like maybe you've made a mistake in entering into a relationship with me. What Paul gives us in Galatians 4, 1 through 7 is a balm to that thought pattern. What Paul gives us is an arresting of this progression of thought that looks at our Lord and says, I think you made a mistake with me. I, I, I don't really think that you feel towards me as I feel towards you. Read chapter four, verses one through seven with me in the book of Galatians. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to see a picture of who we are in you. God, of where we came from, of how you affected change, and of where we are now. Father, my prayer for us in this time is that we would find ourselves resting securely within the embrace of your love. God, help us not to feel wayward, help us not to feel distant, but help us to feel the warmth of your embrace. Help us to feel the magnificence of your love for us. In this cosmic thing that you have transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have ransomed us. You have rescued us. You have given us spiritual eyes to see you and to respond to you. And so, Father, I pray for us in this time that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. God, that we would feel renewed and refreshed by this encounter of you in your word. And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Paul has been going through in chapter 3 and talking about justification. And he's been making this point over and over and over again. And for us, it's good that we've taken this slow time to go through it because it's such an important message for us to hear and apply to our hearts frequently. We have been justified through faith and not through works. But then he opens up with this illustration in verses 1 and 2. And he describes something that, that although may not be totally familiar in the way that the Roman or the Greek law was written or the Jewish law, it, there are principles that they would have understood. And so he said, let's say you have this heir. You have this person, and they're going to receive it someday fabulous wealth, property, and all of these things. You have this 
heir. But while they're a child, while they're a minor, he says they're really no different from a slave. Except this, he's the owner of everything. And so we see this picture in our mind. We kind of cast ourselves back there and you're walking along with this minor, with this child. And you say, what about that chariot? And he's like, that's my chariot. That's great, man. That's a candy apple red chariot with a rag top. That is a fantastic chariot. He's like, I know. They're going to make cars like this. No, okay, so it's not a future seer. And so that's my chariot. He said, what about this house? He's like, bro, that's my house. He's like, those columns? Yes, those columns that pull out back, that pull out back. He said, well, here's the deal. Let's get in this chariot. Let's drag the strip. Let's grab some ladies, and let's go back and hang in that pool. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. It's for sure my chariot, that's my house, that's my pool. I can't use any of it. That's not really your chariot, that's not really your house. You live down the street, right? He says, no, listen, that's really my chariot, that's really my house, that's really my pool. But I can't avail myself of any of it. No, this is the predicament of the law. All that stuff was going to be his. But he couldn't access any of it because he was under the law. This is why he moves into verse 2. He says he's under a guardian and a manager until the date set by his father. Now, if you remember back in chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, he talked about this pedagogue, this this, uh, tutor. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So this guardian was responsible to take a child from 6 to 16 to get them from the home to the place of learning. Transporting them from one place and dropping them off at the next. And so what Paul says in 1 and 2, he says, listen, under the law, you were an heir. All of these things were coming to you. But you had no ability to engage in them and to benefit from them as long as you lived in submission to the law. Now, what's he communicating to the Galatians? There's no benefit to you if you want to move back into the law. If you want to move back into the law, you got to get rid of all of the spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ. you got to get rid of all the access that you have to God. And you have to place yourself back in this deal of having no access to any of the things that God has given you through Jesus. So what's the point there? That they would hear that and say, I don't want to go back this way. I don't want to be a minor I don't want to be an heir that can't enjoy the blessings. I want to stay and remain and enjoy these blessings. And then Paul says, listen, this is the construct of how it was was done in the law. But what if you weren't under the law? What if you formerly were just far off and under something different? You were seeking to grow close to God through something different. So he adds in verse 3 in this description of their past. He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this elementary principles of the world takes this this Greek word and idea of stoichia. And that's a fun word, and you can use it at lunch, and you can bewilder all of your friends. But stoichia really kind of gets that, and there ends up being three or four kind of main ideas for how interpreters try and understand this. But the basic sense of it is the basic building blocks of, of life and social order. So kind of this ABCs of life and social order. So some commentators look at it, and they say what he's talking about is the rudimentary understanding of the law. Kind of this basic building blocks of the law. You were formerly under the basic building blocks of law. 
Other people look at it and say, no, what he's talking about is back in chapter 3 and verse 28. Do you remember what he said? There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female if you're all one in Christ Jesus. So he said, when you look at your culture, when you look at your culture and you understand this is how our culture functions, this is who rises in culture, this is who falls in culture, this is who gets to be in charge, this is who gets to be subjugated, just kind of this is the the warp and woof of, of how we engage and how we know that it's rude to do this or right to do this. These are the basic propositions for how we engage in life. He says, you were formerly under this system. You were formerly engaging in these things. You were trying to advance in the world, understanding the systems of how they operate. And so that's two understandings. And the third understanding is that Paul isn't talking about the fundamental ABCs of things, that he's not talking about the culture and how it operates, that he's talking about this spiritual world and realm and its existence. And it says, formerly, before you came to know the Lord, you were, look at what he says here. He says, enslaved. No, he's not describing that and saying you had a casual relationship with these things. He says, you were enslaved. And a slave has to do what their master tells them to do. A slave has to live according to the dictates, to the whims, to the fancies of their master. And so we have this sense that this person, that this group of people, that you and I formerly in our former manner of existence were enslaved. And we hear this and it just makes our blood boil. I wasn't enslaved. Nobody was telling me what to do. Nobody was directing the way that I engage. I was my own man. I was my own woman. And, and nobody told me anything differently. I, I just wanted to live the way that I wanted to live. And I just wanted to do the things I wanted to do. Well, Paul elsewhere in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, describes this period of autonomy, this period of freedom in your life. Now, listen to what he says. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. He says, before you came to know Jesus, you might have been the best person on your block. Everybody might have looked at you and said, he or she is amazing. They're the best neighbor. They're the person you want. They mow over on my property line, and it's great. They fertilize, and they let the overspray hit my grass. They weed, and they let all the weeds in my yard die so it doesn't affect theirs. They're the best person in the world, outwardly. So I think we hear verses like this and we just say, that's not who I was, that's not how I was operating. Because rolling around in our minds is this construct and this understanding of Satan, of the enemy, and of demons that is characterized, right? It's this, 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 this caricature of, oh, I'm not seeing this guy with this red horns and this tail and a pitchfork who's walking around like, I am going to get you. Right? When so I've not seen this guy, I've not felt his hot breath on the back of my neck, I've not had a sense that I've been overtly oppressed, and so I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it, I just don't, I don't recognize it, I, I don't, I'm just not aware that this has happened. Let me clue you into something. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4, had these words to say. He gives us this picture that we see that, the, that Satan masquerades as an angel 
of light, a being of light. It's this picture that he's masquerading as an agent of light. So Satan doesn't come to you and and put forward the the paths of the world and say, this is how it is and this is terrible, but you need to do it and you're going to be miserable and you should engage in it. He comes to us and he masquerades as an agent of light. So he sets up world systems and he sets up all of these various ways that we can engage and be and operate. And everybody in the culture says, this is good and I'm going to do this. But what we see Paul say. He says that you find yourself enslaved to these patterns, to these principles of the world that everybody looks at and says they're great. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. So we look at this and we come to this understanding. Because we were people who were enslaved, because we were people who could not set ourselves free, we need someone to set us free. We need someone to spell our release, to set us free from those things that were entrapping us. So what does he say? He he shows us in verses 4 and 5 how God brought change. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. For what purpose? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It paints this picture that God was looking cosmically at, at creation, that after the fall, it is in the plan and the providence of God, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that he would put enmity between the woman and the serpent. Right between his off, her offspring and his offspring, that he would strike his heel and she would crush his head. That in the seed of the woman, the promise and the plan of God to bring redemption for humanity would be revealed, going all the way back to creation. That in the fullness of time, that those who were looking, that those who were waiting, were always wanting to see the deliverance that God would bring about in humanity. And what we read here is that in the fullness of time, that when God superintending and bringing all of the various events to transpire in history, that all these various things, that when they reached the culmination, that point at which God had decreed that his son would come, that his son came. You see, it's not like God's up in heaven, he's got the angels gathered around him, he's got the big screen, the teleprompter in the corner, he's like, hold on guys, this might be the one. This might be the one the Assyrians are doing some nasty stuff. The Babylonians are up to no good. If all of these things culminate just right, be ready. We're going to need a virgin. She's going to have to have a baby. This is how this thing's going to roll. Just just be ready. It wasn't functioning that way. It didn't work that way. It's not that God's up there and he's hedging his bets. He's like, listen, I got this guy who's running books on the game downstairs, and and he says that things are ripe for a Messiah. So you just be ready because we're going to make some money on this one. God knew how the whole thing would play out. And in his perfect timing and in his providence, he sent Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. And he sent him, Paul says, in this really particular way. He sent him being born of a woman and being under the law. Now this idea of being born of a woman points to Christ's full humanity. It's not a point at his... It's not a point at the virgin birth. It's a point towards his full humanity. 
You can read this in Philippians 2 where Paul talks about he humbles himself by taking on human likeness. He empties himself. When Christ came, he was fully human and fully God. This is Orthodox Christianity. So he came in all the frailties of our human form. He got calluses, he got sore muscles, he was fatigued, he could get sick. In all these various ways, he came in our frailty. He says he came and he was under the law. Christ found himself in subjection to the law. All the various mandates of the law and all the things that came with it, Christ was underneath those things. The one who gave the law found himself living under the law. And Romans 10.4 tells us that Christ perfected the law. That he perfectly lived, that he honored, that he executed the law flawlessly. That he failed in not one area. Born of woman, born under the law. For what purpose? To redeem. To win back. To transfer. Galatians 3 and verse 13 Paul had written, it said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, whoever is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So we see this fantastic picture here that Paul says, listen, when everything was perfectly set, God sent his son. He sent him in this way in human form. He sent him in this way underneath the law for what purpose? To redeem you, to redeem me, that he might be a curse so that we might not have to and to adopt us as sons. Now, why is that important? You see, the Galatians were trying to get themselves to be a part of the family of God through doing something. There's got to be something I need to do. And that thing for them was keeping of the law. And so if I can keep the law, then I can move myself and I can become a part of this family because I'm changing who I am and I'm changing how I engage. <laughs> but what Paul says in the midst of this is, no, 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 no. This is not you doing something. God has made you his son. He has adopted you. This is his picture of him going out and saying, I take you as my son. I am choosing you to be my son. And this process is affected, is brought into reality through Christ's death. He has redeemed us. So we come into this understanding of what this is asking us to do implicitly in the midst of this is to come into this with a deep sense of humility. Now some of us, we look at our past lives and what we're saying isn't a sense of humility, but woo, that was a close one. I know how bad I was. I know how checkered my history was. I know who my friends were. Woo! That was a close one. But a realized understanding of what he's calling us to in the midst of this. It's a profound sense of joy. Because we're responding wonderfully to the grace of God in our lives. That through his love, he came and pursued us. Listen, on your best days, don't you feel like a person who's worthy of being pursued? But on your worst days, when people turn against you, when you find yourself turning against people, when you see yourself yelling at your kids, when you see yourself struggling with dishonesty, when you see yourself surrendering and losing to the lusts of life, when you find yourself haughty and prideful in those times, aren't you tempted to see yourself as a person not worthy of pursuit? 
Aren't you tempted to see yourself a person not worthy of the love, the, the, the seeking of God on the, part, on the part of you? But listen to what he says. He has adopted you. Verse 6, and because you are sons. Y'all, on your worst day, at your lowest point, at your most wayward, your most backsliding, and the point when you're so incredibly enmeshed and admired in sin and beginning to wonder, am I even a follower of Jesus? He says to you, because you are sons, not because you made yourself sons, not because you're headed towards a betterness in life, but because you are sons. What has he done? He says he sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now listen. Paul has a parallel in Romans 8, 14 through 17, but what he says here is so incredibly free. There are these moments in our lives where we don't particularly feel close to the Lord. And most of us, what our pattern is in those moments is to not hang around with Christians, right? Because they are some of the worst people in the world. But that's a different sermon for a different time. But what we find ourselves doing is removing ourselves from the church, removing ourselves from these things, because I don't want to be reminded of what I'm not. I don't want to see myself through the mirror of their lives. I don't want to see myself through the mirror of Scripture. I want to see myself being free and being released and just kind of easing back over here. And I want things to settle. In those moments, when you want things to settle, when you want things to just kind of lay back off you, listen to what he says here. You are his son or daughter. And in salvation, at the moment you were saved, God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, came into your life, into your heart. And in those moments of waywardness in particular, His Spirit is crying out over and over and over again, Abba, Father. It's not your spirit that's crying out. The perseverance and assurance of faith for your life, what maintains you as a Christian is not your ability to do right and to not do wrong. What holds you fast, according to Paul in Ephesians and according to Jesus in the Gospels, is the power of his spirit. And what his spirit does in your life each and every day, regardless of how you feel, whether you feel close to the Lord or far away from the Lord, whether you see yourself moving in sanctification or backsliding in sin, what his spirit is doing each and every day, at every moment, in every way, is crying out, Abba, Father. There is freedom and release in that. Why is there freedom and release in that? Because we recognize in that, that when we see ourselves backsliding and we say, what I need is grace, friend, you already have it. His spirit lives in you and is testifying to the greatness of what God has affected in you for him, crying out, Abba, Father. Now, why does he use an Aramaic and a Greek? Why does he use a word from Aramaic and a word from Greek? Because what he wants to tell the church, going back to chapter 3 and verse 28, there is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. What we have is one experience of forgiveness, and that through Jesus Christ, who makes a diverse group of people all one in him. Now, the only place in the Gospels where we find Jesus used this word, Abba, now, likely when he's speaking Aramaic in the Lord's Prayer and elsewhere, he's probably using that word amongst the disciples. But the only place we see the gospel writers transliterate this Aramaic word 
The only place we see that is in, in Mark chapter 14, I think it's verse 36. Now, I misquoted 2 Corinthians earlier, so don't quote me on that. But I'm pretty sure that's it. So Jesus is in, the, is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's crying out to the Lord that the cup would pass from him. And in this moment of intense vulnerability and intimacy, he says, Abba, Father. So this is what we can learn from that. You have intimate access to the creator God of the universe. You have intimate access every day in every way to the creator God of the universe. And God has set it up in such a way that his Holy Spirit that lives in your heart testifies over and over and over again to that reality. Crying out in your best days, Abba, Father. Crying out in your worst days, Abba, Father. Christian, be encouraged. Your past and its failures, your present and its difficulties do not define who you are and your relationship with God. What defines it, what has set it, what establishes it, and what keeps it moving on into the future is God and the work he has accomplished. Look at how he closes in verse 7. Is it because his spirit lives in you and it cries out, Abba, Father, and it testifies to you over and over and over again that you are his son? This is what is happening. So then, you are no longer a slave, but a son. You're not this heir who has no access to the things that are coming your way. You have fully received them because Jesus has won them. And his spirit is testifying over and over and over again. He says, and if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. He has adopted you. He has redeemed you. Your adoption stands still today. The fact that you are a son or a daughter of the king still stands strong today. My friend kept pursuing a number of different women, and he kept having these same conversations over and over and over again. I really like you. I really enjoy spending time with you. I'd like to pursue a relationship with you. Now, you'd think that he would change up his game a little bit, right? But some people don't have any game. But a number of years ago, he found himself in another conversation. And almost when I imagine it, it's this point of serious dejection because by this point, he was bald. And he, he's in there. And in my mind, the way that I picture this, he's looking down at the table between the two of them, thinking, I wonder if we'll go Dutch when she rejects me. He says, I really like you. I enjoy spending time with you. I'd like to pursue a relationship with you. And for the first and only time, what he hears back from her is, you know what, I really like you. You know what, I really enjoy you. And I would delight in pursuing a relationship with you. He'd been searching for something for a long time and he finally found it. And the woman that he's now married to. 
what we find in the Lord is that he is looking at us in our moments of waywardness. And he's looking at us shouldering the burden and feeling the rejection that we feel like we deserve. And what he says to us is, I delight in you. That you are my son. That you are my daughter. That I have adopted you and brought you into my family. I have made you my own. And the things you're saying about yourself and the things you're feeling about yourself, they are not the truth. Because my son has redeemed your waywardness. And my son has atoned for your sinfulness. And my spirit that lives in your heart just cried out to me, Abba, Father. That is what is true of you. That is what is real of you. And that is what I believe. Would you pray with me? God, many of us today, we doubt the truth of your word, the truth of your forgiveness. But your word still stands that you are our Abba, Father. So God, in these moments, some of us, we need to come forward and to pray with our brothers and sisters and say, would you just say again to my heart what he said to me and what God's word says of me? Would you confirm again for me that I am his child, that I am loved, that I am rescued, that I am redeemed? God, and other, others of us in here and in this hearing, what we need to hear is that forgiveness is possible, that redemption is possible for all. And we have folks who have yet to submit themselves to the love of your son, to respond to the gospel, that Jesus came to save sinners, that his love is available to all, so God, would you move in their hearts? Would you stir up conviction in them? And would you help them to find forgiveness in your son Christ? God, we submit these things to you in his name and for his glory. Amen.